One of the most significant ways that I've grown in my faith is by being in community with other believers and watching how they handle suffering. I've also been impacted by believers I've only known from a distance. And one of those people was Nabil Qureshi. Perhaps you've heard his story. Nabil was born in California to Pakistani immigrants who had fled religious persecution at the hands of fellow Muslims. And his parents were devout members of the peaceful Ahmadi sect of Islam. And so Nabil was raised as a devout Muslim, studying while growing up Islamic apologetics and engaging in discussions with Christians. And during one of these discussions with the Christian, the two became friends, and they began a year-long debate on the historical claims of Christianity and Islam. And Nabil chronicled his resulting journey in his first book. It's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Later, Nabil went on to become a Christian. He accepted the Lord as a savior while in medical school. And this decision caused a great deal of pain to his parents, for he had left the faith of his family, of his forefathers, But Nabil knew that following Jesus, while costly, was worth it. He went on to study Christian apologetics at Biola University while also completing a medical degree in 2009. In 2012, he obtained a master's in religion from Duke University while pursuing a PhD in New Testament studies at Oxford University. If anything, he was smart. In 2013, he joined the Rari Zacharias International Ministries as an itinerant speaker, where he became known as a brilliant apologist, boldly defending the Christian faith. And then later, he married his wife, Michelle, and in 2015, they welcomed a daughter. In August 2016, Nabil made this announcement on Facebook. This is an announcement that I never expected to make, But God, in his infinite and sovereign wisdom, has chosen me for this refining. And I pray he will be glorified through my body and my spirit. My family and I have received the news that I have advanced stomach cancer. And the clinical prognosis is quite grim. Nonetheless, we are going to pursue healing aggressively, both medical and miraculous, relying on God and the fact that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. In the past few days, my spirits have soared and sank as I pursue the Lord's will and consider what the future might look like. But never once have I doubted this, that Jesus is Lord. His blood has paid my ransom, and by his wounds, I am healed. No, in the midst of the storm, I do not have to worry about my salvation, and for that, I praise God. Friends and family, may I ask you to fast and pray fervently for my healing. And as you pray and fast, I will rejoice For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Nabil went on to chronicle his battle with cancer through a series of video logs. And I remember watching him share his very personal journey with the world. And I wondered what I would do in his situation. Would I have that kind of faith, that kind of trust in God? How do I respond when I'm in the midst of a crisis, when the day of trouble comes for me? And perhaps you have wondered the same thing as well. Maybe you're in the midst of a crisis right now. 
Because the reality is, we live in a broken world. Suffering is a part of our lives. We can't escape it. Whether it's terminal illness or mental illness, the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one, the pain of a broken relationship or the pain of watching your child walk away from the Lord. We could go on and on. Suffering is a part of our lives. So, as missionary disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ, how do we respond when we're faced with suffering? How do we react when the day of trouble comes for us? And what helps us when we're confronted with the crisis? Well, this morning, I want to look at the answers to those questions by looking at the life of Stephen. And what we will find is this. Your relationship with Jesus determines your response to suffering. Your relationship determines your response. And so this morning, here's all I want to do. I want to get, get a little background going on where we are at in the Acts narrative. And then we're going to jump right into Acts 6 and 7, where we meet Stephen. And so if you would, please turn with me to Acts 6 and 7 in your Bibles, because that's where we're going to be for the rest of our time. But first, a little background. In Acts 1, Jody taught us that we are called to be witnesses, and, and we've taken Acts 1-8 as the key verse of our study. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts 2, we see the birth of the church and that the gospel unites us. 3,000 people come to faith. And we see these believers united and acting as one as they share their resources with those in need. They're meeting together daily. And in Acts 4, we're told that God's grace was so powerfully at work among them that no one is in need. And last week, Alice taught us that the church is a spirit-filled, sacrificial community of imperfect people committed and empowered to spread the gospel. The church is alive and active. And then in Acts 6, they faced their first internal conflict. The Hellenistic Jews complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The Hellenistic Jews are Jews whose primary language is Greek, and so they have Greek roots. And the Hebraic Jews are Jews who have kept to their Jewish roots. They've clung to their Jewish roots. And so there's language and social differences that result in cultural differences. And it's causing a division in the church. And the disciples move quickly to handle this directly. And, and the, the apostles realize that they can't do everything. They recognize that they have to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer, preaching and prayer. And so they identify seven men who are full of the spirit and wisdom to take care of this food distribution issue. And here's where we first get our first glimpse of Stephen. He's one of these seven guys. And what I want us to pay attention to in Acts 6 is what it tells us about Stephen. Verse 5 says that he is a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 tells us that he is a man full of God's grace and power, and he's performed great wonders and signs among the people. So Stephen's on the front lines of spreading the gospel. He's taking care of the widows, he's providing for the needs of people, but he's also powerfully preaching the gospel. So much so that those who oppose him, who oppose the truth of the gospel, cannot stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gives Stephen. And since they can't stand up against his knowledge of scripture and the gospel, 
they begin to spread lies about him. And they say that he speaks blasphemous words against Moses, the temple, and God. And so he's brought before the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious council, the most powerful men in his nation. And in verse 15, it tells us that they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. These powerful religious rulers are staring him down, and Stephen remains calm. Even when faced with false accusations, even when people are blatantly lying about him, and he knows he's in trouble, his very life is at risk, Stephen never loses his composure. And then in Acts 7, we hear Stephen speak. And this is the longest recorded sermon in Acts. So I think there's something that God wants us to learn from this. And Stephen walks through the history of Israel, but I think it's much more than just a history lesson. It's actually a declaration of the greatness of God. Stephen is in the middle of a very dangerous situation. This is his moment of crisis. This is his day of trouble. His opponents have done everything they can to destroy his reputation, to put an end to his preaching. But Stephen faces his opponents head on. Stephen knows his God. He has a deep, intimate relationship with God. He understands the character of God, and it's evident because he uses scripture to proclaim the greatness of God. Stephen shows us the character of God through four movements of Israel's history, found in Acts 7, verses 2 through 50. So first, he begins with Abraham, and he tells us that God is a God who keeps his promises, that he's a faithful God. God promised Abraham land and descendants even when he had, did not have any children, when his wife was barren, when the scriptures tell us that he was advanced in years. And God delivered on his promise. God always comes through on his promises. He's faithful to his word and he's faithful to his people. Now it may not look like we think it should look like, but that does not mean God is not faithful. In Lamentations, the prophet says this, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God remains faithful to his promises, even though we are often unfaithful. God's faithfulness is not dependent on our performance. It's who he is. It's his very character. And as we learn, as we get to know him, as we learn his character, we begin to trust him. Stephen then moves from Abraham to Joseph and his brothers, and he refers to them as the patriarchs. And here he shows us that God is sovereign. Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. They rejected him. They sold him into slavery, uh, but God was with him. God was in control, and Joseph rises to a high-powered position in Egypt so that when disaster strikes, when famine strikes, Joseph is in a position to save his family who are desperately in search of food. Have you ever wondered about your future? Perhaps you're there right now. Maybe you're in a, a place in life where you're worrying about your next step in your life. Or maybe you're in a new season, you're wondering what's next. Perhaps you thought you'd be in a different place in life by now. Maybe you're not at the job that you want or your family doesn't look the way you imagined or how you would like. And we try to plan our lives, don't we? And there's nothing wrong with planning as long as we lay those plans in the hands of God. I'm a planner. I love to plan. But in all honesty, my life has not worked out at all the way I had planned. 
because God had better plans for me. And the comfort I have is that I believe in a sovereign God, a God who's in control, because let's be honest, you and I think we're in control of so many things, but the reality is we control very little. And the comfort we have, the confidence we have, is that we believe in a sovereign God, a God who's in control, who has a plan for our lives. He knows every single one of our days, even before one came to be. And we can trust in a sovereign God because not only does it mean that he's in control, but his sovereignty means he makes the right decisions for us. God never gets it wrong. You and I get it wrong all the time, don't we? God never gets it wrong. Stephen goes from Abraham to Joseph and then he begins to recount the story of Moses. And again, we see the faithfulness, the sovereignty of God as Moses' life is spared as a baby and he was raised as a member of the Egyptian royal family, given the very best education available in the world at this time so that one day he would become the deliverer of Israel. Stephen tells us of the omnipotence of God, that God is all-powerful as he reminds them of the wonders, the signs that God performed as he brought his people out of Egypt and out of slavery. Stephen reminds us of the holiness of God as he tells us that the people refuse to obey God. They reject him and they begin to worship the golden calf and God gives them over to their worship. He allows them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years as a result of their disobedience and their lack of trust. God is holy and he calls us to be holy. And I know this isn't a popular concept, but this is truth. We need to do battle against our sin. We need to put it to death, as Paul repeatedly says in his letters. Colossians 3.5 says, put to to death, therefore, what is earthly, what is sinful in you. As we see this holy God, it must drive us to hate our sin and to put it to death. The first response to seeing the holiness of God is that we passionately pursue holy lives by putting our sin to death, by repenting and confessing of our sin. But God never gives up on Israel, just like he never gives up on us. God is a compassionate God. He goes with them. He provides for their every need. And so Stephen moves from Abraham to Joseph, to Moses and the wilderness wanderings, and finally, he begins to discuss the tabernacle and the temple. And he says that the tabernacle is where God would meet with Moses. And he goes on to say that God does not live in houses made by human hands. Stephen declares that God is uncontainable, that he is vast, he cannot be measured. You and I are containable. There is this day that we are born, there is this day that we will die. Our days are numbered, we are finite, God is eternal. We can't be in two places at once, God is omnipresent, he is everywhere. We don't know everything, God knows everything. He is uncontainable, he is vast. And we try to contain things, don't we? Just think about organizing your closet or your home we, we put things in the right drawers and, and we get the proper containers. We even have a store for this, the container store. Like it's completely dedicated to selling containers. Why do we do that? Why do we try to contain objects? Because we attempt to control, but we can't control God. We cannot contain him. C.S. Lewis's celebrated children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, tells of the adventures of four children in the magical kingdom of Narnia. 
The story is an allegory of Christ and salvation, with Christ represented by the lion Aslan. And when in Narnia, the children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who describe the mighty lion to them. Hear how Mr. Beaver describes Aslan. I tell you, he is king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Our God can't be put in a box. He doesn't fit into the models and the paradigms that we make up. He's not safe. We can't understand or predict what he does. He's God, and we're not. The prophet Isaiah writes this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He's not safe, but he's good. We can't control him. He is uncontainable. Stephen has this intimate relationship with God. He knows his God because he studied scripture. And throughout his sermon, Stephen recites scripture. He retells the story of the Old Testament. Stephen understood that the primary means of God's revelation of himself to his people was through scripture. Here at IBC, we believe that scripture is one of the five rhythms of a missionary disciple. And we say this, missionary disciples love God's word. Therefore, disciples seek to know him better by studying and allowing scripture to shape their lives. The apostle Paul writes a letter to young Timothy and he tells him this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be equipped for every good work. Scripture is the very breath of God. And the Holy Spirit uses scripture as a tool to bring about transformation in our lives. Now, we don't study the Bible so that we can just check a task off our list. No, we study the Bible so we can know God. Scott McKnight, in his book, The Blue Parakeet, writes, God gave us the Bible not so we can know it, but so we can know and love God through it. Our relationship to the God of the Bible is to listen to God so that we can love him more deeply and love others more completely. The Bible is a story about God. It's a story about us and God, but first and foremost, it's a story about God. And in it, we learn the ways and the character of God. Jen Wilkin, who's a writer and Bible teacher, says this. Think of Bible study as a savings account rather than a debit card. Rather than viewing it as a declining balance you draw on to fill an immediate need, allow it to have a cumulative effect over weeks, months, and years. You may not reach understanding of a passage or be able to apply it well after one day's exposure to it. That's okay. Keep making deposits into your account, trusting that in God's perfect timing, he will illuminate the meaning and usefulness of what you've studied, compounding its worth. What if the passage you study today is preparing you for a trial 10 years from now? 
Study faithfully now, trusting that nothing is wasted, whether your study time resolves neatly in 30 minutes or not. We develop an intimate relationship with God by reading and reflecting on scripture. Our relationship with God develops as any relationship does, as we spend time listening to him in his word over days, months, and years. God speaks to us through his word, and we would do well to listen and to allow it to shape our lives. It's what you do before your day of suffering that defines how you will act in your day of suffering. And this is what Stephen does. Stephen has this deep and abiding relationship with God because Stephen knows scripture, he knows his God, and he recounts who God has shown himself to be throughout the history of his people. But another theme throughout his speech is that Israel has repeatedly failed to listen to God. They've rejected God's prophets, they've rejected God. And this is a lesson for us. God has given us his word so that we might listen to him and obey him. But we can also choose not to listen. We can also choose not to obey, and it will never go well for us when we fail to listen to the God of the universe. And this is what Israel has done. And so Stephen lays into them, into the religious elite, in verse 51 of of, uh, Acts 7. Let me read it for us. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Stephen directly attacks them for rejecting the Messiah, for rejecting Jesus, and they don't like it. Picking up at verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the, at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees. He cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling council. He's wrongly accused. But what I want us to see is how Stephen responds. And what we will find is this. Your relationship with Jesus determines your response to suffering. Relationship determines response. So how does Stephen respond? He looks up. Instead of focusing on his circumstances, which are really bad, he looks up and he focuses on Jesus. In Stephen's moment of crisis, he looks up rather than down. He doesn't question God. He doesn't think that God has left him. No, he looks for God in that moment. He looks up. 
He remembers who God is because he knows scripture. And in his day of trouble, these are the first words that come to his lips. He quotes directly from scripture. He's meditated on it. He's reflected on it so much that he's hidden God's word in his heart. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119, Stephen sees God in the midst of his suffering. He clings to him and he trusts him. And Stephen's able to do this because he's got this deep, abiding relationship with God. Stephen knows his God. He recounts the character of God. He knows he's sovereign, so he looks up. He sees that Jesus is in control. He has not left him. He has not abandoned him. Even though it looks like the enemy is winning, Stephen knows that Jesus has already won the victory for him. Stephen had such boldness, such courage, such peace, because he knows his God. And he's strengthened by the fact that Jesus is in control. He's got every right to be angry. He's being falsely accused. He's about to die. And he's an innocent man. But instead of seeking to control the situation, he recognizes that his God is for him and his God is in control. And that is enough. Stephen trusts his God. It's what you do before your day of suffering that defines how you will act in your day of suffering. In your study this week, you looked at the similarities between Stephen's words and Jesus' words on the cross. Because Stephen knows scripture, he knows God, it's led to transformation in his life, and so he follows in the footsteps of his Savior. He prays, he forgives his enemies, he trusts God. And God had a purpose in Stephen's death. Stephen's blood was the seed of the faith of the greatest preacher and evangelist that has ever lived, the Apostle Paul. Stephen's death led to the persecution of the church, and so the, apostles, the believers scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And Paul, who was then called Saul, begins to destroy the church. But the church has now spread as God had originally intended way back in Acts 1.8. And it started with Stephen knowing God, having an intimate relationship with God, and trusting God. Stephen's life and death was the spark for the gospel going out to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you and I are sitting here in Irving, Texas in 2017, and we owe a great debt of gratitude to Stephen and to so many men and women who have gone before us so that we might know the truth of the gospel. In September 2017, Nabil Qureshi's doctors decided to place him on palliative care. There were no further medical options to pursue. He posted one of his last videos on September 8th, and he said this, if there's something that I'm wrestling with through all of this, it's where does my faith need to be? Do I need to perform? And honestly, I don't think so. I think God understands where I am right now, and he comes alongside us in that. And he loves us, and he gives us his strength for today. And then Nabil prayed this prayer. Lord, we know you are able. Please heal. Please come through. But if it shouldn't be your sovereign will at the end of the day, then I trust you, and I will love you anyway. Nabil's relationship with Jesus determined his response to suffering. On September 16, 2017, at the age of 34, Nabil Qureshi went home to be with Jesus. Nabil's greatest apologetic, his greatest defense of the gospel was not some sermon he preached, but the way he responded in suffering. 
And Nabil's death was not in vain. Thousands watched how he lived and how he died. Trusting Jesus and knowing that God was in control and that that is enough. I told you earlier that one of the ways I've grown in my faith is by being in community with other believers and watching how they handle when the day of trouble comes for them. And just about a year ago, uh, I got to spend time with an aunt of mine who was in the very last days of her life. Originally from New Jersey, she and my uncle had moved here to Dallas uh, to, to be near their son and, and their, his family. And she's one of the strongest and godliest women I've ever known. And I've known her my entire life. She'd battled ovarian cancer for four years. And during the last six months of her life, while she was here in Dallas, she was in and out of the hospital with infections and just various illnesses. And one day, after experiencing tremendous pain, the doctors finally said, there's nothing more we can do. The, doc- the cancer has spread, the tumor is too large. And so as a family, we gathered around her bedside and we waited for her to die. And after 10 days of being hospitalized, she, her body succumbed to the cancer and she went home to be with Jesus. And I had the privilege of speaking at her funeral back in New Jersey, and I want to share with you a portion of what I said. It's difficult to find the right words to share with you to describe the life of a godly woman like my aunt. During the last six months that she lived in Dallas, I had the privilege of visiting Auntie many times, sometimes at home, but always when she was in the hospital. And during those last 10 days, I went to the hospital every single day, and every time I would read scripture and pray with her. I did this because I loved her, and because I knew it comforted her, but I also did it for myself. You see, I had the great honor of watching a godly woman suffer well. Auntie went through much pain, much suffering during the last years of her life, and yet she was steadfast in her faith. She had this unshakable confidence in her God, and she never wavered from it. Even during her last days, her concern was always for others, for her husband, her children, grandchildren, and for every single person that came to visit her. While I would visit to encourage her, it was often I who left encouraged. Her last words to me were a prayer of blessing for my life. She asked me to lean in close, and with the little strength that she had left, she raised her hand and she put it on my head, and she prayed a prayer of blessing for me. And she encouraged me to trust the Lord for the great things he had planned for me. This is how this woman lived during the last days of her life. As a younger woman... I had a front row seat to watch this older, godly woman live a life worthy of the gospel. And I will always be grateful to Auntie for what she taught me through her life and for the gift that she gave me by letting me be with her during her last days. Whenever I think of her, which is often, I think of the Proverbs 31 woman, this ideal woman that's held up for us in scripture, and these words come to mind. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She was a woman of love, compassion, wisdom, generosity, hospitality, and tremendous faith. And as we remember her life, we remember a life well lived for the glory of God, and the good of people. My aunt looked up in her day of trouble. She looked up and she trusted Jesus. She never doubted his love for her and she spoke always of her love for him. She lived with gratitude and joy in the face of the worst circumstances, 
because she had cultivated a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus over many years of walking with him. I watched how she lived and I saw how she died, how she handled the best of times and the very worst of times. She taught me more in those 10 days about what it means to know and to love God than any seminary class ever could. Her relationship with Jesus determined her response to suffering. So what about you? Perhaps you're in your moment of crisis right now. And if you're not, odds are that you will experience a crisis sometime in the future. How will you respond? Do you know your God? Do you know his character? Have you seen his beauty? In the pages of this book, God reveals himself to us. He shows us who he is, that he's a God who's faithful, sovereign, omnipotent, holy, compassionate, and uncontainable, and he is so much more. Do you know him? Don't miss that. It's what you do before your day of suffering that defines how you will act in your day of suffering. Are you spending time listening to God as he speaks through his word so that you might cultivate a deep, intimate, abiding relationship with him? Friends, there will be this day when we will see the face of God, just like Stephen did, just like Nabil did, just like my aunt did. But until that day, we get to see his face through the pages of this book. Why would you not want that? If I could plead with you for one thing, it would be to know your God. May our prayer be just like King David. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, so that I gaze on the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Oh, that you would know your God, so that in your day of trouble, you would look up and you would trust him. Your relationship with Jesus determines your response to suffering. Your relationship determines your response. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this time. And great God and King, we thank you that you are our Father, that you have made a way for us to be in relationship with you and that you desire to know us. And God, you are our treasure. You are our great reward. There's nothing better, more valuable, more beautiful than knowing you. And so, Lord, would you help us so that in our day of trouble, we would be able to look up and we would trust you. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.